Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is Rick Gruno. And Rick, it's really a great pleasure to see you again after a very long time and a great honor to have you here in the pod because in the fields where I know your work, namely communications and sociology, you've been immensely influential on many of us, myself included. Uh, I've been reading your work for too many decades. But what I'm interested in right now is what you're thinking about today, Rick. What's mattering to you? What's interesting you? What's dynamizing you? Well, it's hard not to be swept up in global affairs. You get up in the morning, I read The Guardian, and I'm, you know, okay, so 2023 is the hottest year on record, which means it'll probably be the coldest year in the 21st century. And the, uh, <laughs> yeah. and then you have um, you know, what's going on in Gaza, and then you have... Oh, you know, what's going on in Ukraine and the resurgence of fascism in the United States and the kind of stuff. It's just that, I mean, it's all, it's difficult not to think about those kinds of things. And, and when you're, you know, so don't get me wrong. I don't spend my mornings doom scrolling. I'm too old for that, but I get a coffee and I, you know, and I go through this stuff and then I go think about the other things like, you know, uh, having a, an 18 month old grandchild and yeah. you know going out and kicking a football around soccer ball around with him and uh you know and I still ski and so you know and I still surf a little bit so you know there's the opportunity to just get outside and do those kinds of things and then I'm still doing a little bit of geezer writing here and there and <laughs> a geezer writing so, yeah yeah so those are the kinds of things that are, I mean, I don't know how anyone can get through a day without thinking about some of those kinds of things, not only because they're in the news, but just because for the politics that I grew up with and, uh, you know, I, I would have, I was too young to vote in the 1968 federal election in Canada, but had I been, I would have voted for Tommy Douglas. I was getting interested in the NDP. I was becoming involved a little bit in the party and they were, and then, but I was still kind of water skiing at a fairly high level. So I was, you know, kind of in and out of that. And you live this kind of bifurcated existence where you're kind of wanting to be in politics on the other hand. And the, and yet the next thing you're worried about is being able to afford the gas to drive to your next water ski tournament, hoping you might win a little money or doing something like that to kind of get you through the next month. No, I think that that dynamic of moving between daily life and the big pictures of the world is, is incredibly important. When I open the guardian in the morning, Rick, I read the obituaries first. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, there's that. Yeah, there's that. But I, I, uh, I try not to do that. But I know that, uh, you know, I mean, and it's interesting, because I'm going to London in, uh, in about 10 days, and the, just, just for a week, but I, you know, and I was thinking about that, too. Well, I, I can, I better hook up with some of my friends, let me old friends, let me just see if they're all still alive. You know, so yeah, so that's the uh, well. Know, the work I tell because... you, Gary Wanell is Rick because I Gary is Gary is. I will probably have a pint with him when I'm there. Yeah. So 
<clears throat> going not so much back, 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 but forward, 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 kicking around a ball with your grandson um, yeah. is is pretty exciting. And what I, of course, like 96% of the world's population call football, i.e. soccer, yeah. has really developed in Canada uh, in the last little while. I'm thinking of really great players for the national team, like Alfonso Davis, for example, yeah. who plays in Germany, but also the success in the Major League Soccer League of uh, the, the Whitecaps in Vancouver, where where you live. And I'm just I'm wondering what part now soccer plays in the Canadian sports imaginary. I ask that because you've produced at least two books about hockey in Canada and its significance for national symbolism. Soccer is never going to be anywhere near hockey, but what sort of place would you say it has? I mean, it, it's interesting because they've been, I've been thinking a lot about this. So um, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with North American style football uh -huh. yeah. and played and even played a little bit in university, not too long because I was getting beat up too much and decided I would swim instead in university. But the, uh, um, Pure so, sharks when you're swimming, Rick. Yeah, yeah. Watch the sharks. So I was. Uh, uh, so it, uh, what struck me about it was I've I've been sort of writing a little bit of a kind of a memoir. I don't think I'm important enough to write a memoir that anyone would even remotely want to read. So it's more. Um, what I would do is I was obsessed for a long time with CLR James' book Beyond a Boundary, mm -hmm. and I'm not CLR James for all sorts of reasons, <laughs> and uh, you know, visually, culturally. Uh, and, and temporarily, but I liked the idea of sort of using personal stories as a platform to tell a broader story about sport and class and imperialism and gender and so on. So, so I was sort of I'm doing been doing that right now. One of the things that I did was I happened to as I was because. You know, I'm looking back through some old yearbooks and correspondence and my mother, bless her, kept a scrapbook and I've got stuff like that. And, you know, you go back through this, you have conversations with friends, you try and get it as correctly as possible. Although, as Peter Berger said many, many years ago, we're constantly reinterpreting our own biography. So you want to try and make it maybe less nostalgically romantic than it ever was. But so you're working with that kind of stuff. Anyway. All of that's to say, the high school where I played, where I was obsessed with North American football, gave it up a number of years ago, started a soccer academy, and now just plays soccer. So, And that was a kind of middle class, sort of upper middle class high school, and they don't play football anymore, North American football anymore. And partly because for the kinds of people whose children go to that school, Football's now seen, Canadian football is now seen as too violent, yeah. uh, uh, too dangerous uh, because of concussions and things like that. Uh, so they've sort of shifted in this direction of soccer. There are soccer academies or football academies all over Canada now, and many of them are indoor. And you mentioned Alfonso Davies. Uh, Alfonso Davies, when, when his family... They were immigrant settlers when they came to Albert or Edmonton initially. 
he started in a program called Free Footy because they didn't have the money to join any of the clubs or associations and so on. And then, and then eventually, uh, you know, sort of went on to uh, clubs where this, the fees could be paid and other kinds of things. And so he's a product of, I think, a new phenomenon in Canada, which is a uh, tremendous growth in 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 soccer but particularly i think in in women's soccer just like in hockey the biggest growth in hockey i think is in is in women's hockey and 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 so we don't have i mean they're still canada is still kind of a hockey mad country in a way but not like it was not like it was in the 1950s where hockey was kind of when i was growing up was sort of part of the zeitgeist of like you know it was you know we traded hockey cards we did all of that there's there's still that going on but we live in this world of tiktok and youtube and you know people don't have a thousand things that command their attention in a way so many kids are gamers they're not even out there on the pitches playing before so i would say that when i you know the world that we wrote about dave whitson and i wrote about in the in the in the early 90s about hockey and canadian culture and then when we followed it up in the aughts with another kind of edited collection to try and update some of that stuff that world's gone I mean, now we're in a completely different configuration, I think. And the really fascinating thing for people who are interested in sport and culture is to try and understand the dynamics of that configuration. Because particularly since the end of the aughts, there have been huge changes. And it's hard for, you know, old geezers, for geezers to kind of graft those things, right? Like my son is always criticizing me because he texts me and I don't answer because I don't know where my phone is. And then he'll say, you know, when I say to him, look, we didn't have a television even until I was seven years old. So like, you have to cut me some slack on not carrying my phone around with me all the time. But, but that world of mental health issues, uh, you know, one of my daughters has mental health issues and has fought them since high school. Uh, phones, the, uh, it's, the the gap the extraordinary gap between rich and poor this world of billionaires where you know you is it impossible to get through a day without hearing that Elon Musk has said this or that or Jeff Bezos or whatever and you know you just think I, I don't care and and yet it's there it's suddenly like newsworthy or every single time the orange idiot in the United States makes any kind of statement. It's like there, it's, you know, Trump said this and you just think, why are you covering this? And then you realize that, you know, you've studied media for years and that it's a business and they're selling advertisers, audiences to advertisers. And that's what this is all about. But at the same time, it's hard to have that distance sometimes when you respond to it affectively. Right. Like, you you know, your first reaction is affective rather than intellectual. And so then you have to step back and say, well, now I've got to think about this. But all of that really labyrinthian way around is to say that if you're interested in studying sport right now, you have to understand it in a way that's radically different from even a decade ago. Well, 15 years ago. So thinking about the kinds of critiques that you and Professor Whitson and others have made of things like Hockey Night in Canada and the Don Cherry style of masculinity. 
right? For example, and I'm not an expert on these things at all, but I've read the work, let's say. Do you think those critiques still have relevance to understanding Canadian society? More than ever. More than ever. Yeah. And the reason is, is because history isn't linear. And many of the kind of progressive gains made by Second World War feminists, Second World War, or sorry, second wave feminisms uh, by progressive school programs and other kinds of things. Uh, If you're interested in masculinity right now, we're in a climate of algorithmically driven backlash. Mm -hmm. Uh, People like Andrew Tate, for instance, misogynist kind of, and I use the air quotes as strongly as I possibly can, influencer, uh, are... uh, are, are are kind of extraordinarily appealing to young men. And there is this attack on women's bodies in the United States. And, you know, we're in a time right now where many of the things that people took for granted as having been won by the uh, early 2000s are being eroded and challenged in all sorts of ways. So, so I think the kind of interest that the, the Don Cherry model of masculinity that we talked about many years ago uh, is still extraordinarily appealing to large numbers of men. And uh, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, uh, on Hulu, and now it's on Crave, the, uh, Jared Kiso, who did Letterkenny, is a show largely about based on a kind of small Canadian community, loosely based on Listowel, Ontario, and that they call Letterkenny. And, you know, it did seven or eight seasons on Hulu, and he's done a hockey spinoff of that called Shorzy. And, I mean, Shorzy's really well done. But what it also does is celebrate that kind of masculinity in a way. And and, and, uh, and, sorry, and, and so that doesn't go away. No, no, it doesn't. Could you, for people, and most of the listeners to the podcast at the moment in its current iteration are in the US, Britain, Australia, Spain, and some in Latin America and a few in Canada, could you explain a little bit about the Don Cherry phenomenon? Because I guess he comes to epitomize some of this. For me, he was the Jordan Peterson of the pre-internet era. Jordan I, I, I think that's intellectual a, version of Don Cherry. It's it's a really. I mean, I think that's a, a an interesting analogy. It was. I mean, there's something about. I only played two years of minor hockey, and I was very bad at it. And so, you know, I, when Dave played at a higher level, Dave Whitson, my co-author of the Hockey Night book we did in the 90s, Dave played at a higher level. And so he, you know, I came at it with a different set of kind of interests from Dave, but Dave Mm -hmm. had actually played at a pretty good level and I was terrible. And uh, the, the, but even as a nine-year-old playing minor hockey, I knew certain things. And I knew them from watching Hockey Night in Canada and also going to double header games, junior A games. Junior A is the level, sort of the level below uh, pro hockey in Canada. And uh, the we would go to these junior A double headers at Maple Leaf Gardens. My father used to take me. And 
the seats were fairly inexpensive. You could literally sit right close to the glass and you could hear what people are saying on the, fi- on, on the, on the ice. And, uh, you know, if there was a fight or what coaches were yelling, you could, you could hear all of those things. And, and, and it was a bit like going to school. Even in, as a nine-year-old, I knew certain things. Mm-hmm. Always support your teammates. Never back down from a fight. Suck it up if you're hurt. Do what you have to do to win. I knew that as a nine-year-old. Yeah, and, sure. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, and I was terrified of it. You know, I would like most of us on our team, we were terrified fighting, right? And fortunately, it was such a low level of hockey. We never really, and so young, we never really had to. But my friend, Roy McGregor, who has written a lot of Canadiana novels and books about Canada and played hockey at a high level. I mean, he and I were talking about it a while back and, you know, he was involved in some fairly serious fights as an 11 and 12 and 13 year old player in Huntsville, Ontario. I mean, it could get pretty rough in some of the smaller communities. And so, um, so that sense of uh, being a man was about, uh, it, it was a model that was in hockey was kind of forced on you in a way. And you either lived with it or you didn't play. And I think now fewer people at the younger people like for this we had this scandal in the in 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 2020 with Hockey Canada um parents found out that part of the fees that they'd been paying to Hockey Canada that Hockey Canada had used it to uh settle court cases that women who claimed to have been sexually abused by players at the 2018 and 2003, I believe, junior world junior championships had brought against the hockey Canada. And they had used money that from parents registration fees to settle these things. Now their position was, oh, this was just, you know, a litigation issue, you know, an insurance issue. We were just handling. Well, parents were outraged because the, you know, you can't sell that now in a way that you might have in the past. And so there was a big scandal. about And the feds canceled the Hockey Canada sponsorship. Um, major sponsors, commercial sponsors pulled out of sponsoring hockey uh, or the Hockey Canada. And, and so there was a big thing about it for 18 months or so. And now they've brought in some uh, you know, best practices, provisions, and created some government agencies and a number of kind of things. Now the sponsor, they they've got rid of their board or their board resigned. They got some new people in, a little bit more diversity, a little bit, and they're and so now we're kind of back to normal. And the uh, but but that those attitudes to masculinity are still there and they're very powerful. The thing is they don't quite sell in the upper middle class like they did before. And this is your point about soccer displacing yeah. hockey. Yeah. Still, still masculine. You or know, football. you can still play the, you know, the masculinity game with football or soccer. Right. Uh, you can, but you're also, uh, you know, parents don't like hitting the ball. So, you know, when I coached kids, for instance, uh, when I had young teams, you know, I'd have people who would, 
say, you know, they wanted their, they had this fantasy that their kids would someday be in the Premier League, their sons would someday be in the Premier League, and I wouldn't have nine-year-olds practicing heading. And, you know, they would say, you know, they need to learn to head the ball because, you know, when they're in the Premier League, they're going to have to do this. And then I, you know, and you don't, you don't want to take a parent and sit them aside and say, you realize that your odd, that the odds of your, you know, child, you know, ever playing at that level are that you're far more likely to be hit by lightning walking between this conversation and the car in the parking lot. But, you know, you can't sort of sell that story. But there was no doubt that, you know, the general reaction that people have that we need to sort of tone these kinds of things down. Uh, it's the, when it comes to masculinity, it's the kind of cultural equivalent of saying that you should give nine-year-olds participation awards as opposed to awards on the basis of merit that they win, right? Like the argument is, is that, you know, we need to train these kids to be tough. We need to train them about that the values of achievement are more important than anything else, that nobody gets anything for free. That's what I learned in elementary school. Mm. And there are a lot of people of my generation in particular who think that's what their kids should be. And and didn't Cherry have some expression like if you can't win in the alley, you can't win on the ice? No, well, that was actually Con Smythe rather than Don Cherry. But okay. that but but the uh, but Don Cherry's Don 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 Cherry, I, you know, he came to prominence as the commentator uh the kind of color commentator on uh on hockey canada he would do these bits about you know kids this is what you should do watch what you're doing but there was another guy on hockey canada for a long time a guy called howie meeker who was a lot more technical and had a much different model of masculinity than don cherry mm-hmm. and howie meeker's model he, I, I don't know if you know in canada there was a a, a cbc television character who did children's shows um but but he was like like Mr. Rogers, right? So Howie, Howie Meeker was like the Mr. Rogers of Hockey Canada. Yeah. He would say, you know, you should do this and you should do that. And Don Cherry was, he was the macho guy. And, and Don Cherry came to prominence because initially, not only because he had hockey knowledge, but he came to prominence because he'd been involved in coaching one of the great teams, the Boston Bruins, that he he had this coaching cachet in the same way that former national football league coaches or college coaches end up on ESPN or, you know, mm-hmm. or there. And then they develop this sort of brotherhood of expertise, former players, former coaches, and it becomes a kind of bro culture moment while they talk about it. And then they bring in an attractive woman or two to settle that, you know, to kind of, you know, that's been a fairly new thing. Although, one of the things that, you know, if you look at, say, ESPN FC, for example, Kay Murray's been involved for a long time and she knows her football. So there's a different, slightly different sort of, you, you could see a kind of shifting terrain, but there's a backlash to that terrain. Don Cherry, interestingly enough, one of the things that really, he was the guy who used to, who made his real impact, I think, by being uber Canadian nationalist, white Canadian nationalist, or not white, not even white. Uh, let me just say uh, North American Canadian, Euro Canadian. No, not even that. Let me back up. Because he didn't like the players from Europe. 
He didn't like the players from Sweden and Finland who were coming in. He once famously said that, uh, uh, I think it was uh, Hammerstrom, he said that Inger Hammerstrom could go into the corners when the ice could go into the corners to fight for the puck with eggs in his pocket and he would come out and they wouldn't be broken. That so that you know that that so and and so the idea was that you know what was happening was the NHL was bringing in chicken Swedes, you know that was another phrase chicken Swedes and you know uh, and they these these Europeans were bringing down what was uniquely Canadian about hockey, which was the level of machismo and kind of and like as I said earlier the willingness to fight the loyalty the band of brothers kind of phenomenon that was so deeply entrenched in the game. And Rick, they had it too, but they just yeah in a different idiom. Would it be fair to say that although Canada has become a very urban country and the population lives most of it very close to the United States, there is still a notion that's very powerful that you get, I think, also in the U.S. though less so, in places like Australia and in the Nordic countries, where the notion is that the real Canadian is rural is pioneering, is not urban, is not immigrant, is not indigenous, but is, you know, Euro-descended person opening up the frontier. And is that a fair rendering on my part? I would say yes and no. I I think it's a partial rendering. Mm -hmm. And the, I mean, all nations, you know, have their kind of national myths and mm. faux origin stories and so on. One of Canada's national myths is that uh, we're exceedingly polite compared to Ameri- uh, you know, Americans. And I remember Mark Fawcett, who was writing a lot of stuff in the 80s and 90s, wrote an article, wrote, a, wrote an article once where he said, Canadians are so polite because we're so bellicose beneath the surface that if we weren't polite, we would just fucking kill each other. <laughs> right, and that was the so that was this sort of the, the you know the model. Well, I think that so I think that model of Canadian politeness is of course a caricature. And similarly, the model of the Canadian frontier and Canadians being like that like is a caricature. And the uh, and it's you know it's long gone. Canada hasn't been you know Canada stopped being a largely rural society in many ways. Uh, in terms of its population base after the 1950s. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, people now, you know, I talk to people and they, uh, if you talk, if you tell them about how many people graduated from high school in Canada on average in the 1950s, how many people went to university, uh, you know, they're astounded how few people went to university in, the, in, in, say, 1960 in Canada and how many people didn't graduate from high school. And, the you know, and, and things have changed so much in the, past, in, the, in the century since then. But some things, you know, because as I said earlier, history isn't linear. It's a bit like Raymond Williams arguing many years ago that there's always this fluctuation of the dominant, the residual, the emergent, and the archaic. And that, you know, there is this, you know, that these things are kind of woven into the tapestry of history. And what becomes dominant at one point isn't necessarily what's emergent at a particular time. So if you, you know, I think that 
you know, if you had asked me in 1972 uh, that to describe what I felt the state of say global democracies were was going to be in twenty in the twenty early 2020s, I'd have been dumbfounded because I think I was still young enough to falsely imagine that there was some sort of linear progression towards fairness, uh, betterment, equality, gentility, uh, uh, tolerance in particular. And, you know, I think now we live in a world where intolerance has a commodity value. You know, I mean, commodity intolerance is one of the hottest goods around right now. And people, the marketing of intolerance, the sale of intolerance is a large part of what the world is all about. So Don Cherry achieved part of that, of, of his cultural momentum, because he was an early spokesperson for a kind of reaction to uh, the what he saw as a diminution of the authentically Canadian settler qualities uh, that he thought that the that the Europeans from these social democratic countries were coming in and watering down. And then you know it became it was metaphorically not really unlike the kind of stuff that you hear from people talking about. Uh, you know the great great replacement theory in the United States. It was the hockey version of of uh, it was the little replacement theory that Don Cherry developed in talking about hockey when he first started out on or as he developed on on Hockey Night in Canada. You know they're the Swedes, the Russians, whatever you know they're coming for us. But what what are they doing? They're coming for our game. And uh, and I think that uh, you know people don't automatically think of hockey so much in those terms anymore. But Don Cherry, as a spokesperson for that kind of sensibility, I don't, it's probably not completely incorrect to say metaphorically that he's the Jordan Peterson of an earlier time in hockey. But, uh, uh, and in fact, and, but he, and he's still a matter of cultural interest. Christy Allen, who's a young sociologist of sport, a Canadian sociologist of sport has a new book on Cherry that she's just finished. It's not out yet, but there'll be, uh, but you know, that there's still a, a lingering interest in that partly because what's going on right now brings back the kind of the Don Cherry thing and famous hockey players. Like there was a reaction to Don, some of Don Cherry's comments about immigration a few years ago and prominent players like Bobby Orr, for instance, who's like, a legend, uh, came out in favor of hockey. You know, Cherry had coached or so there was a kind of uh, a connection there and came out, you know, in support of him saying, you know, he's being canceled, right? Like, and that was, you know, so we, you know, we, we can't cancel Don Cherry. And there are always people who want, they want those voices. It's just like, um, it's like, I don't know, you know, the, I find it fascinating that a number of the successful podcasters, Joe Rogan comes to mind, mm. have mixed martial arts backgrounds. It says something about a particular, the resurgence of a, of the dream of a particular kind of masculinity. People who are supposed, profoundly decent, but know how to handle themselves in difficult situations. Uh, you know, the kind of man that 
women want to be with because they'll feel protected. Although if you look at, say, Andrew Tate, for instance, it's the complete opposite of that, right? So, uh, but, but you, know, we're li- I, you know, we're living in this very confusing time, I think, where you have kind of a real clash between what many people saw as largely unstoppable progressive gains made in the late 20th century and, and now fighting it out with a kind of backlash that has been going on. I mean, it's always been there, I think, in the United States. My father-in-law was the Republican and we would go down and he would get, he would get journals and magazines and they, you know, I remember having a conversation with him a long time ago where we were talking about the repeal of the fairness doctrine in the United States. Yeah, Federal and, Communications Commission legislation. Yeah, FCC, a, a, a you know, when they repealed the Reagan people destroyed. That's right. And and he was saying, well, they needed that because if we hadn't had that, we wouldn't have had Rush, right? Like we needed, if we hadn't had the fairness doctrine repealed, we wouldn't have had Rush Limbaugh. And of course, my argument was to go, exactly. But, <laughs> but that, so we were on completely two different sides and yeah. Uh, of, yeah. of that fence. And, but we managed to survive and, speak to one another and get along for many but, uh, years. But You're mentioning Rush Limbaugh has driven me to a glass of wine, Rick, because it's nearly eight o'clock here on a Sunday night in Spain. I oh, yeah, I was going to I was going to accuse you of day drinking. But you know what? I think you go ahead. <laughs> but I, I want to go back, 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 even before the hockey night in Canada work to something else you did. Uh, and, you know, correct me if I'm getting this wrong. But I think I'm right, at least in my judgment. Back in the 80s, in, the, in, in many ways, I missed the Cold War, right? Back in the yeah. 80s, for my thinking, from my perspective, and I think Jim Mackay would probably share this perspective, you were really the person, along with Alan Tomlinson in Britain, uh, maybe Alan a little bit later, who and, and Gary Winnell, too, whom we mentioned before we started recording, who really brought Gramsci into the sociology of sport, sport studies in general in the English language, and that your focus on systematic inequality, partly through class, but also on struggles, hegemonic struggles for meaning, uh, for me revolutionised the field and meant that I could, I had someone to read who seemed to think about the same sorts of things that I did, but also stimulated me. Now, does that mantle sit well with you, or have I misread your entire body of work? No, it's very gracious of you to say that. Um, I think it probably uh, it probably attributes a, a more Gramscian, you know, purely Gramscian kind of, you know, if you were to say to me, you know, what what interests were, you know, where did your interest in, in you know, in Gramsci come from? Um, I did a little edited collection in the, uh, in the 80s on popular cultures and political practice. And, right. uh, yeah. and there was a very, I wrote a very Gramscian introduction to that. And so if I can back up just a little bit, uh, I was teaching at Queen's University in the 1970s, uh, Queen's University in Ontario, not Europe, but Queen's University. And the 
And I had a joint appointment. I was in the Department of Sociology, but I also, they, I, I, the reason I got the position was they, the School of Physical and Health Education had just been approved for a master's degree in the sociology of sport, but they only, they didn't really have anyone to really do that, but they had no money. It was 1973 and the global deflation had sort of hit fairly hard. They had no money to hire anyone in that. Yeah. And I was looking for work and I wrote, them, uh, I got wind of the fact that they were, I had been teaching at the University of Waterloo on, on a sessional basis. And I got wind of the fact that Queens was looking for someone to do this work. But they, and they were advertising for a job in sociology. The sociology department was advertising for a criminologist. And so I, and I, this is, you know, another far too long story but i had when i was doing my phd at the university of massachusetts i was desperate for money and one day walking across campus i saw a poster that said brooklyn career opportunities program you know was looking for instructors so i went to see them and they said you know and i said i'm doing a phd in sociology and they said oh well we're doing this we have this program we run in brooklyn and we need someone to teach social problems well i laughed because i was at like a shoulder length hair or like water ski bum you know who wore tank tops with butterflies on them. and and i thought you were a social you... problem yeah i was going to teach social problems in brooklyn right so so i applied for the job and they interviewed me and they said uh you know what would you do if you got this job and i said i'd walk in to the class the first day and I'd say, am I the only person in here who realizes the absurdity of this? Anyway, and they gave me the job. That's so I taught, so I taught that course to a class of thirty some odd middle aged black women who were trying to get paraprofessional qualifications to help out in the inner city school system in Bedford Stuyvesant, wow. and uh, and so. And 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 I made the class, you know, I just said, this is an absurd situation, but here's what we're going to do. Uh, I will talk about the academic literature in around in sociology, around these kinds of things. And you can tell me, uh, you know, how that, you know, how that misses the kinds of, you know, your experience and what have you. And we, I sort of ran it as a kind of dialogue seminar and, I think it went reasonably well, but because they took me out day drinking at the end and kind of, we seemed to have a, you know, a good relationship. But so, so I had this experience where I had did, so I applied for this like criminology position, but I wrote in it and I said, I'm not really a criminologist, but I have this experience. And, but I've been teaching it a sociology of sport course on a sessional basis at Waterloo. And my teaching assistant in that class class was Jim McKay. <laughs> and so anyway, the, uh, so then I wrote in my application letter and I hear that the school of physical and health education is looking for someone because they want to start a graduate program they need, and they in the sociology of sport and it's been approved but they don't have the money maybe there's something we can do and i copied the letter to this director of the school of physical and health education so anyway i ended up getting hired 
uh, on soft money initially, teaching in both places, teaching sociology of sport in the School of Physical Education. They didn't buy my social problems kind of attempt at self-designation, but they brought me in and I taught social stratification and intro social for a few years. And uh, while I was at Queens, one day uh, we had hired a new colleague because the phys ed school hired a new sport historian. And it was a guy called Hart Cantillon. Oh, he had, right. <laughs> and Hart had done his degree at Birmingham. And when I was in Hart's office, it was about 1977, uh, and I was in Hart's office, and he had all these blue stenciled papers from the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies. And I was looking at them, and I sort of leafed from them, and I said, Hart, where did you get these? What are these? And he said, oh, there's this place at Birmingham where I was, and uh, and they do cultural studies, and these are some of their papers. And I started reading them, and uh, and I had known a little bit about Stuart Hall, but then I just, so I got obsessed with this. And then Hart and I tried to recreate, we created something called the Sport Center for Sport and Leisure Studies at Queens, which tried to recreate what they had done at Birmingham on a much smaller, well, actually, I shouldn't say smaller scale because I, remember, I went to Birmingham to see CCS for my sabbatical in 1981. And I remember walking in, Stuart wasn't there anymore. But I remember Richard Johnson was the director then. And I remember walking in and there were like, you know, four offices and, you know, an office, you know, kind of administrator and a secretary. And so I, I got into CCCS and, 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 and through CCCS and through an American sociologist whose name was David Salick, who was writing about Gramsci and hegemony in the 70s, I started to read Gramsci. And so, so I, I was actually in the early 1970s, if you had said to me, say, you know, in 1975, 76, you know, who are your major influences? I would have said Tony Giddens. Wow. And, uh, and then, but then I got, I got drawn into the world of, you know, then in the U.S., I started reading radical labor historians and Stanley Aronowitz and people like that. And then I was, uh, and then I started getting very much involved in CCCS. We developed a quite good relationship with the center uh, at like our mini center, our Center for Sport and Leisure Studies and the Center for Sport or and the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies developed quite a close relationship for three or four years. And uh, and so my interest in Gramsci came about sort of circuitously, largely because I had been reading so much stuff that was about social control. And there was this sort of thing that had emerged in U.S. sociology and there was this sort of dialectic of, you know, control and resistance. And uh, it was found in a lot of people in the work of people like Michael Burway. And uh, it was uh, Richard Edwards' work on capitalism in those days. And and then, but the control and resistance thing wasn't theorized. I didn't think adequately. And mm. what happened was I ended up starting to read a lot of Gramsci as a way of trying to do that. But when I wrote my book in the 80s, Class Sport and Social Development, it was, if you had said to me, 
what were you know is Gramsci the major influence yeah. in that? I would say no. And in fact, Alan Berner, Berner in the UK has said to me, you know, oh, you know, you weren't really a Gramscian in the at that particular moment. And I said, I think you're right. I mean, I if if you look if you've asked me theoretically about that book I wrote in '83, I would say the theoretical influences were probably more Raymond Williams and Tony Giddens, and uh, with uh, some. There's a lot of Tom Bottomore in it. Okay, um, fair enough. Right? I just not to counter that because you're the author, but to say. I take all of that, and obviously Giddens and structure and agency were very important at that time, although, you know, I think of him as one of the bright, interesting anti-Marxists. No, I agree completely, but I wasn't sophisticated enough to know that, in the, you know, when I first, right, like, got interested in him. But Williams, by the mid-'70s, had shifted from a kind of left leverism which he and Paul and Hoggart had come up with in lots of ways, to a more Marxist position, I think it's fair to say, and yeah. was Marxism and literature in ideas. No? Yeah. It, I, Marxism and literature was hugely, hugely influential yeah. for, on me when it came out in uh, and, and there was another There was another influence, and the other influence which developed, I think, in, the, on, in, in my work in the 19... Sort of late 1970s, and that was Ralph Miliband, and uh, and the um, I remember I had a really dog-eared copy of State and Capitalist Society. I <laughs> thought it was a great book, and uh, and and then and my colleague Colin Lease in the political science department knew Miliband, and he brought Ralph in uh, briefly, and I got to know him a little bit. We had coffee a couple of times, and then and he was tremendously encouraging about my work on Spore. Because if you sit, when cultural studies first started breaking, and I remember thinking in Canada, when people were, we were doing cultural studies around leisure and sport in the late 70s at Queens. A lot of other people weren't doing it. The kind of academic snobbery around sport was... uh, you know, with the possible exception of sort of wrestling, boxing, the was still fairly strong. Like I, there was a lot of cultural studies. The people who were writing cultural studies work in the early eighties in Canada, late seventies and the early eighties were mostly in English literature departments. Right, they weren't sociologists necessarily. My closest friend, academic friend at Queens in the 1970s was the Marxist labor historian, Brian Palmer and Brian Palmer, you know, I, he and I were talking one day or having coffee one day. And Brian said to me, uh, you know, I was re I had been reading, I was caught up in this kind of so-called culturalism, structuralism debate that had been going on at Birmingham. And so I was reading, you know, Pulansas and all this there. And, and, and Brian said, well, you know, you need to read, you know, Edward Thompson. And he gave me a copy of the poverty of theory. And I went home that weekend and I started reading that 200 page introductory essay in the poverty of theory and I couldn't put it down. And then, um, uh, so, so all of those influ- when I wrote my book on sort of class force and social development, uh, Williams, Giddens, Thompson, 
uh, Brian Palmer, uh, that, uh, you know, those influence and, and, and of course, Stuart Hall, but also, uh, I would say more so than in that book, more than Stuart Hall, Paul Willis, because Learning to Labor had come out and Paul had come to Canada and uh, and I never and, and did a semester at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. I didn't meet him when he was there, but we corresponded a little bit. And then when I ended up going to England, uh, we became friends and we uh, did some memorable things like drink all night in the black country one night. That was, uh, you know, memorable because I didn't know that you could do that. You know, we closing time and we're there and we're drinking the good black country bitter. And, and Paul says, no, I, I, I start to push myself away from the chair. He says, no. And then we end up going into the back with the public. And I don't know how late it was, but I just thought, uh, yeah, this is a different, you know, world, but Paul, you know, I, he, he, he taught me that, uh, that there was a central cultural studies argument that they had hit on is, is that the very things that people do to uh, win space, to to struggle against domination, often have the unintended effects of reproducing dominant social relations. That was the cultural studies argument. And uh, I remember uh, uh, when Ray Wynn Connell was Bob Connell, writing about the Althusserian tendencies at the Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies. And uh, and Richard Johnson always felt that Connell's argument about those Althusserian tendencies was overstated. But in hindsight, I actually think that, uh, certainly in Stuart Hall's work, that Connell had it mostly right and partly I was kind of struggling to get out of that thing. And Gramsci was my way of thinking through that kind of dilemma. Mm. And, and, and so that's like a 20 minute discussion of, about response to a very simple question. And I apologize. It wasn't a simple question. It was a provocation. I'm trying to crown you as something that you're saying is a little bit more complicated then. Yeah, you know, crowns well, are yeah. never a good, their crowns are never a good thing. But I would, but <laughs> when someone, I was pleased, um, there, uh, I know that uh, the, uh, there were a couple of connections that we had when we were at the center that, again, strong connections to the UK. So, for instance, one of my very good friends was Ian Taylor. And Ian Taylor was another kind of connection that I had to criminology, at least to the yes. kind of work that he and Jock Young and Paul Walton were doing. And, and, and Ian and I were quite close. And, um, and then there was also this crazy guy from Cardiff that came to Queens for a year, Jeff Mungem. And Jeff Mungem was again part of that critical, not, not directly, but he was a part of that radical kind of youth culture, critical kind of crowd but a really uh, iconoclastic character. I think as, as, as I think it was, I can't remember who said it to me, but he organized the national deviancy conference one year uh, in Cardiff and didn't come. 
<laughs> you know, like he he didn't come to his own conference, and that was just such a classical sort of Jeff Mungin thing. For right? some for some context, a number of the names that Rick's just mentioned are associated with a very important critical strand of British sociology and criminology. And yes. ironically, given its title, the National Deviance Conference was progressive. Oh, yes. No, absolutely. A, a very important corrective to the norms of, sorry to use Althusserian terminology, but the repressive state apparatus and the ideological state apparatus and their formation around a functionalist and disciplinary notion of criminology. It, and, 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 and there were blind spots, too, that were really important in that. And it was a very dynamic moment. But I, I think... Um, I think it was, and maybe it was Annette Kuhn. We were, uh, we had a conference on gender, leisure, and cultural production at the Queen Center in 1983. And Annette Kuhn and Angela McGrawby and some other people had come over from the UK. And I was, we we're, were having a drink. And, and Annette Kuhn said to me, was, you know, it's nice to be here in Canada. And, you know, and he said, and, and she said, and, you know, you're not really one of the lads. Right. Like, so, so there was a really lad culture in that yes. critical kind of moment in that, that I didn't understand that I, I didn't have the kind of conceptual understanding. I had grown up male. I was an alpha male. I was an athlete and so on. I didn't under, I was sympathetic, but I didn't understand any of those kinds of dynamics. And, and, and that, when I look back on that, you know, it's a lack. There's a, a a kind of blindness to all sorts of things, you know, in my early work. But I would say, when I look back on it, well, if I'm proud of anything, I think it's that I would say that I was doing cultural studies in uh, in Canada at a at a time when cultural studies, when no one in cultural studies was really talking about sport. That sport was almost seen as a not something that if you were involved in cultural studies, you were studying, you know, you were studying music, you were studying comic books, you were studying art, you know, or popular art, you were studying things that people did, various kinds of sort of folklore practices and so on. You weren't studying sport. Sport wasn't a part of that discourse for a very long time, like early on, except one of the things that really struck me at the center was people like Gary Wannell and Roy Peters and, 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 and also, and Paul Willis were interested in sport and were writing about it. And they were among the first to, to, I think, do that. But for a very long time, you know, I would go sometimes to a conference in the United States and, you know, you'd hear people like in the early years, people like Andrew Ross or, uh, uh, would just, you know, they wouldn't, they, they weren't in those days, they weren't talking about that. They were talking about sort of everything else, but, and, and so I think that Steve Redhead told me once that he thought that what we had done at Queens had made a major contribution to the development of cultural studies in Canada. And so I'll take that mantle if someone is willing to, to <laughs> offer it rather than, Interestingly, yeah, rather, rather than necessarily wear the Gramscian thing, which I which I I agree with, but it's not a crown that I wear easily because I think that you mentioned Andrew, and in fact Andrew is very interested in sports and has published on it since. Yes, and 
regards it as a very important thing. But I guess in those early moments in U.S. cultural studies of the mid-'80s, really after it had blossomed in Canada, thanks to the tendencies that you've described, then it tended to be people with a more textualist approach. And I think Andrew's approach has evolved massively since then, if I may speak for him, in terms of both ethnography and political economy. So that leads to my next question, Rick, if I may. I'd like to ask you two more questions, if I can. And then throw things open to you to add anything that we haven't covered that you'd sure. like to address. So my first question is to ask you what you see as the relationship between political economy, ethnography, and archival history. And I ask this for a reason. One of my concerns is that a lot of political economic critique ends up being leftist functionalism. The state is all-powerful, corporations are all-powerful, we can't do anything. But I'm going to point out to you these structures of domination, right? Conversely, much of cultural studies is obsessed with the idea of conflict and the empowerment of the downtrodden and denies the force of structure. So my argument is that on the one hand, a lot of political economy ironically, given its base in Marxism, forgets about conflict, forgets about workers as broadly construed, and just focuses on powerful forces. Cultural studies, again, forgetting much of its debt to Marxism and involvement, intercalculation with Marxism, is so caught up with the idea of resistance that it can negate or forget about questions of structure. Yeah, it's a, you know, I'm glad you've asked me only one of the biggest questions that there is because <laughs> the. Um, no pressure. Yeah, no. And I've always felt that I've done, I've variously identified myself as a political economist and as someone who does cultural studies. So at very, at, at certain moments in my career, I've been much more interested in one than the other. Mm-hmm. But I've also been involved in, I've also done quite a bit of ethnographic work. So uh, I'll just take one example. I, Hart Cantillon and I were doing some research in the 80s, on uh, in the mid-80s, on television and sport. And I decided to do a field study of television coverage of a World Cup ski race at Whistler. And uh, so I went and I did that study. And I tried to kind of ground that study in a kind of political economic framework, to Mm. ground the ethnography in a political economic framework, to say that there is uh, within that, uh, you know, I, I, Stuart Hall told me once that the, sort of encoding decoding paper that he wrote was literally notes that he made on a seminar that he was going up on the train out to Leicester from Birmingham, what takes like an hour. And, and then that became his most widely cited paper. And, you know, the sort of, you know, people were talking about, you know, the encoding decoding paradigm and all of this kind of stuff. And, and, and I think Stewart's position always is that a, 
a cultural studies without political economy uh, is impossible. A political economy without understanding cultural struggle is impossible. The mm -hmm. art is to try to find the way to put them together. And if you were to ask me, you know, at Birmingham, what was the moment when the they came the closest to putting those two things together, I would say it was policing the crisis. Yeah. And and that's, you know, I think there that was the sort of a a level that they reached where the where they were doing kind of discourse analysis, where they were doing, um, you know, they were talking to human beings, they were reading theory, they were concerned with social policy, and they put that together. And so, so for me, policing the crisis was the zenith of right. Uh, right. Of, of of where that kind of kind of Gramscian direction was going in the work that they did. There wasn't uh, the, um, you know, there wasn't feminist work being done at the center in anything other than a minor key at that point. And when I was there, there were, people were talking about it, but the work that eventually became the Empire Strikes Back and the work that came out of uh, out of that period uh, in the center's in the center's history uh, that uh, you know ended up in kind of bringing race into the discussion much more centrally. Although there's evidence of that, you can see that in policing the crisis. But Paul Gilroy, for instance, came out of Birmingham, and Paul Gilroy's work, you know, in the Black Atlantic, centralized that issue in a way that hadn't been done before. And so I, the, for me, it's bringing these, those kinds of things together is a kind of impossible task, but so often what happens is, and I've been guilty of it too at times, is you just gesture at one while you do the other, because it's, you're not willing to do the hard work to try and make them come to get, you know, you've got a short period of time, you're going to sort of like Stuart driving to Leicester and having to come up with a model for a seminar in an hour. You you, you don't, for one way or another, like do the hard work, but you, um, but it's the, but, but what you're describing is the challenge and the best work, I think. So if you were to say to me, uh, you know, what work, do I think comes the closest to doing that? <clears throat> I would say probably some of the episodic chapters in my book, Sport and Modernity, come closest to trying to bring those things together because the political economy is sort of and is sort of woven into that attempt. But you know, I have supervised PhD students over the years. You know, uh, one of my former students, Beverly Best, I, her, has a new book on completely sort of rethinking the labor theory of value in, in Marxism. And, you know, she would very gently, I'm sure, say that I never really engage in a kind of systematic analysis of the political economic dimension from a from a Marxian perspective that I ought to. But uh, I'm trying Right. And I think that's the thing. It's you've got to try. You've got to try to find a way to integrate these things. And uh, and and hopefully there'll be a lot of people who will be better at it than I was. Or am. 
Thank you, Rick. I have one more question before throwing to you, as it were. And this is to use an expression often associated with Raymond Williams, actually two expressions. One, resources of hope. Another, structures of feeling. Yeah. And I wondered if you could tell us what you see as dominant and emergent structures of feeling and what resources of hope you hold on to when you open the Guardian each morning. Well, I would say, Ola, I'm going to answer the second question first. Mm -hmm. The first resource of hope that I have is that there's even a Guardian in that uh, in that it's something a little bit different in that it's not us, you know, it is, and it's not a siloed podcast that has 7,000 people who believe everything that say, you know, Jordan Peterson says, uh, that it's, it's at least an attempt, I think, um, at journalism in a, on a kind of global and international way. It's not, you know, it's, it's mainstream. It's not a specialist publication, academic publication, but, but the fact that people read, uh, you know, there's a reason why I tend to read it every day. And that's, I'm, there's not a lot else out there that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, when it comes to, I mean, there are specialist publications to read. I mean, you could say, well, no, I'd rather read Jacobin than The Guardian, for example, but, uh, or I'd rather read, uh, there's a quite good independent Canadian magazine that, you know, magazines on the left that have been around for a long time. But on a global scale, um, the fact that you can go to something and read interesting people about, you know, you can pick up a, a, a you can read a, a newspaper, so to speak, digitally with the columnist that says um, what's going on in the Sudan. No one's talking about it, but, you know, they're going to be this many million people killed there. And it's a minor key thing. And why should and what does that mean? And, you know, people need to talk about those kinds of things. You're not going to find that in the New York Times even. So so there's so so for hope for me I particularly find a lot of hope in uh let me, let me give you an example. I was struck after the Women's World Cup and I was struck when Aitana Bonmati, the Spanish midfielder, uh won the oh, sort of tournament player of the tournament award and then later won the Ballon d'Or. I was struck by her comment about athletes having particular kind of responsibilities. And what seemed to me was interesting about it was it was a reflection of a kind of uh, the better part of the EU mentality education, tolerance, uh, having a responsibility to others than yourselves. Uh, I have hope about that. And I find that, you know, I coached a lot of women's football or women's soccer. And I always found that the, uh, the women I coached for the most part 
were far more interesting to talk about kind of controversial topics and things and issues than 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 many of the men were. And I should know this as an academic. I should have been able to understand why. But but so I listened to say female athletes speaking out and doing things and uh I I have a friend I think a cynical friend who says well you know that had a commodity value at a certain point in other words there was a point when you know Megan Rapino would speak out and and there was a point when Colin Kaepernick would would speak out and corporations would would valorize that mm-hmm. and that those days are gone they're not they're not doing that anymore that there's a been a, like a pushback i still think particularly in the voices of young female athletes i i find hope and uh in many of the things that uh come out of the lgbtq2s community as we say in canada uh, i think there are sources of hope in that i think there are sources of hope in the resurgence or the revival that I'm seeing in the union movement in parts of the United States and in Europe. Uh, I, there's hope for me in those Swedish Tesla union workers who are holding yeah. Elon Musk's feet to the fire. And so, so while you don't want to make too much of that, I think it's, I'm reminded of something that Ralph Miliband says in his book on parliamentary socialism talking about the Labour Party, that it's unreasonable to expect cart horses to win the Derby. And and so, so for me, there's always that aspect of hope because that's sort of what fuels, you know, living and moving forward. Beautifully put, sir. And to conclude, is there anything you want to add to or maybe subtract from what we've already covered? Well, it's hard to say. I, you know, someone, I was at a conference once and someone said to me that I was unfortunately the kind, it wasn't a compliment, that I was unfortunately the kind of person who when asked for the time proceeds to try and tell you how your watch is built. So, (laughs) uh, so that, you know, maybe maybe it would be dangerous for me to speak anymore because I don't seem to be able to say anything and in the kind of quite neat things. But thank you very much for having me. And uh, it's been great to see you again. And it's been fun to, to catch up. Thank you very much, Rick. I love that story. And to me, that would be a compliment to you because it's talking about the importance of understanding all the complexities of the life of the commodity sign. At the same time, I would like to know what the damn time is if I ask you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. 